Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Keeping the Lights On in America, looking ahead at power grid reliability. Please welcome Derek Morgan, Executive Vice President of the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Executive Vice President here. Uh, good morning to you all. Uh, thank you all who are joining in person and remotely uh, for today's program, Keeping the Lights On in America, Looking Ahead at Power Grid Reliability. You know, there's a, uh, a, a war on fossil fuels, and importantly, um, for some, niceties like affordability, reliability, and even the Constitution itself can't stand in the way. This is perhaps uh, best uh, epitomized by California proposing to outlaw the internal combustion engine, and then within a week having to send out a notice to their grid customers asking them to not charge their electric vehicles, and also to think, about, think twice about their AC and their lights and everything else in the afternoon when the solar panels are not nearly as efficient. And so um, their war has included regulations uh, cracking down on traditional power plant emissions, uh, the recent electric vehicle mandate, of course, from California and also from the EPA, where they uh, want two-thirds of vehicles to be electric by 2032. We have the EPA's new Clean Power Plan 2.0 just released. Of course, that had to be done because 1.0 was struck down by the Supreme Court. Apparently, President Obama's pen is not mighty enough to undo the separation of powers. For that, I think we can be thankful. But all of these attacks on the grid, uh, you know, amount up to, like I said, a war on fossil fuels and perhaps even a death warrant for coal and natural gas power plants, particularly in the long term. And you have to wonder where all of our energy is going to come from, since that's a majority of our grid supply. Rather than building energy independence here at home, the left is really attempting to build an electric bandwagon of reliance on natural resources uh, made by our adversaries, uh, chiefly China. We can't afford to put all of our eggs in that basket. So uh, to discuss these issues in a fireside chat, we have two experts that also possess common sense. It's a rare combination in today's Washington. Travis Fisher is a senior research fellow and former advisor and economist at both FERC uh, for nearly a decade, I believe, or maybe just over a decade, and then also uh, at the Department of Energy. He's also a former president and CEO at the Electric Consumers Resource Council, which represents large users of electricity. And of course, the customer is a very important person and when we talk about grid reliability. James Danley, our distinguished guest, is current commissioner and former chairman at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. Prior to joining the commission, he practiced law in DC, and he clerked for Judge Danny Boggs of the Sixth Circuit, excellent judge, and held uh, multiple positions at uh, a couple of different think tanks here in Washington. Um, most notably, he served two tours in Iraq during his time with the US Army. Thank you for your service. And now I'm going to turn this over to my colleague, Travis, who will be moderating a fireside chat. Please welcome Travis and Commissioner Danley. Let's just jump right into it, because we, we have a, a lot to cover. Unfortunately, it's a target-rich environment. Um, sure. And I do want to offer the disclaimer, this is standard, you are still at FERC. Mm -hmm. There are ex parte rules. We can't get into any active cases. That's uh, right. So yep. let's let's put that up front. And to the extent to which you wander into it, I'll stop you. Exactly. So, yep. Uh, I also want to be as unscripted as possible. One thing among many, one of the many things that you and I agree on is that the average FERC meeting is overscripted, wooden, and boring. And I'm trying to avoid all of that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And really, I, I think Derek touched on all of the initial points that I wanted to raise. Just the sheer scope and degree of activity that's going on at the EPA is 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 going to be a, a focus of this event. You know, in terms of the policy timeline, we have the mercury and air toxic standard was one of the largest coal killers in 2015. Uh, clean power plan, which was initially um, outlined in 2014, again, subject to the West Virginia v. EPA case, which established the major questions doctrine. And uh, we have a new greenhouse gas rule that just came out um, this month. 
and an EV mandate that came out last month. Uh, so all of these combined, there is a... Uh, the Department of Transportation comes a rule about um, air emissions from the operation of pipelines, too. In fact, I'm sure if we tried to capture all the relevant policies, that would take up the entire, yeah, the entire time, meeting. and we don't really yeah. want to get into that. Um, I also, I, I should note that Judge Boggs is here with us in person. Thank you for joining. Um, the other thing, and th this is not a regulation, this is a, it was supposed to be a budget reconciliation action, but the Inflation Reduction Act, I should say, so-called, because I'm not sure it does that, um, Goldman Sachs has estimated that the total subsidy within the sort of the green energy subsidy piece of the IRA will be $1.2 trillion. So that's the context here is that we have a significant amount of regulation attacking the fossil fuel fired power plants on the grid. And at the same time, we have just an immense amount of subsidy for the intermittent resources. And I think those things combined are really sort of the context for the threat and what I want to talk about today. The other thing that I'll note, on May 4th, you were at a hearing. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee held a hearing. Ostensibly, it was a FERC oversight hearing. I, I watched it. I thought it turned into a grid reliability hearing. That was, that was the key focus of it for me. Um, let's start there. You, you said there's an impending but avoidable reliability crisis. What, what's, what was the message that you were trying to convey to the Senate? Uh, so the, the 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 basic premise that I was trying to convey is that we have a system for much of the the territory of the United States. The majority of the population lives in FERC jurisdictional market territories, and um, we rely upon these markets in order to ensure resource adequacy. Right. So there are two different concepts. There is reliability, which is basically the proper functioning of the bulk electric system, and then you have resource adequacy, which is if the bulk electric system is working, do we actually have power to deliver on it, right? And you have to have sufficient resources of the correct type with the correct attributes in order to actually make the system function and have power delivered. So in the old days, we had vertically integrated utilities that had uh, franchise service territory overseen by public utility commissions of the state. And the state and the utilities together would come up with an integrated resource plan. They would determine what was needed for peak load, and then they would uh, go forth and build and then file a rate case to get cost recovery in the paradigmatic uh, regulatory scheme that we used to have everywhere in America. We dispensed with that duty to serve with the IRP process, with all of the oversight for resource adequacy by the states in those regions in which FERC jurisdictional markets operate. I'm talking about the markets like PJM and ISO New England and MISO. Uh, the only means in those market territories by which we can actually ensure resource adequacy is through market mechanisms. That is to say, the price signals that are developed when you have, for example, capacity auctions. You have an auction that is a three-year forward basis that says, we will pay you X amount of money that's determined by the auction to ensure that you are available three years from now when called upon to deliver electricity, right? So that I, I, for many people in the room, that's probably a little bit basic, but I think it's worth just setting the, the understanding what, what I'm talking about. So if those market mechanisms are undermined by uh, market skewing subsidies, or if the generation assets that attempt to participate that have the needed attributes can't, effectively, that is to say, if they cannot clear in the market set capacity auctions, they will be driven out because their costs will be too high. And if you treat all megawatts equally when they bid into the, or offer into the capacity market, then you will have a bid stack in which the, the less, less efficient uh, uh, resources get excluded. And so what we are seeing right now, and all of our markets are telling us that there is impending scarcity problems. PJM has been recently raising the alarm. We've heard this quite a while in both ISO New England and MISO. Uh, we are going to be running out of the resources that are actually needed to ensure reliability down the road. And um, if you are curious and you want proof, and this should be absolutely dispositive that the markets aren't functioning, PJM has recently been raising the hue and cry about uh, impending resource failures in three or four years. And yet at the last uh, auction, the last procurement auction, prices dropped. And so if, if prices can go down in a time of scarcity, then that means that the price signals are faulty. And if the price signals are faulty and they are the only thing upon which we can rely to ensure resource adequacy, the inevitable consequence is going to be system-wide uh, scarcity and, and ultimately reliability failure. 
That's important to note, and the the context here that I think is even more important, the, the PJM market has long been criticized as being sort of over-procured. Yes, long capacity. Very yeah. large reserve margin. People say it's too much. We're overpaying for reliability in the PJM region. And it, it's also important to note, PJM used to stand for Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland. It's the wholesale market that serves the DC area. So the fact that we have lights on right now uh, you know, is, is in part thanks to them. I think that's the, the thing that I hear from a lot of folks is, in this restructured world where you have wholesale markets and you've sort of abandoned the vertically integrated system that was the utility, the vertically integrated utility working closely with state regulators in every part of the value chain. Now we have a federal and state jurisdictional split on the, on the market front. And then the other question is who is responsible? So when it comes to reliability problems, who do we go to? Um, you know, in the, in the wholesale market setting, you would think it would be FERC, working with NERC, and this is acronym SOUP, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. Um, who should we be mad at when these events happen? So uh, I'm happy to take as much share of the blame as is properly placed at my feet when, when something eventually happens. Uh, certainly the subsidies that are both state and federal are, are the, the fundamental thing skewing the markets, but, but FERC has a role to play here that we've, we've failed to play. In the past, we have our, our obligation is to ensure that rates are just and reasonable. And uh, in the past, uh, starting with a case ages ago called Tejas, we determined that the only way we could make market-based rates just and reasonable is if we stopped the exercise of market power. And one form of market power is buyer-side market power, in which you have people effectively being able to bid in below their costs because of subsidies. We had a thing called the minimum offer price rule in several of our markets that has been abandoned. And I posit that without a, admittedly, this is a, 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 um, an administratively arrived at process, but without some mechanism of establishing guardrails to protect the price formation within the markets from the effect of the subsidies, that is forcing uh, generators at a minimum to bid in the costs that they actually have to pay. In the absence of a mechanism like that, not only are we going to have reliability crises down the road, but we have unlawful rates because the rates cannot be just and reasonable based upon case law that's been around for decades now. Um, you ask who, sh who you should be mad at, so you should be mad at FERC for having failed to insulate the markets, which are jurisdictional to us. There have been many arguments made that you are violating the principles of cooperative federalism on which the Federal Power Act is based by, in by ensuring the integrity of the markets. That's not true at all. The states are, under the Federal Power Act, perfectly entitled to choose the generation portfolio within their borders, and I would never argue otherwise. However, they, however they play in their sandbox, we can play in ours. And it is our job to ensure that our rates are, are just and reasonable. And to the extent to which we are acting as midwife to not just and reasonable rates by allowing subsidies, state or federal, we're really causing problems for the markets that we are obligated to ensure deliver these rates. That's absolutely right. And so one enjoyable part about working at a think tank, I get to talk about the uh, plausible first best alternative. I think the MOPR is basically a second best. It's sort of the FERC reaction to state policy. I think the first best is still you know, you remove the state level mandates, you remove the federal subsidies in the absence of all of that. Because we, you know, I've, I've been pushing for that for years. Um, turns out uh, states don't listen. So they, they're going to keep doing the, the RPS policies and things like that. So that, that's one of the sort of second best options is at the very least, you can protect the resource adequacy piece of the market from the state subsidies. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, when it comes to the, the other threats, which is, you know, there's a whole host of EPA regs now. Mm -hmm. You would think that at least federal to federal, there would be some level of coordination. Um, that's sort of in my ideal world. That's probably not happening. And I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on with all of the EPA regs that are impacting, you know, you know, I would argue your, your jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. These are rules on power plants that are designed to impact the market and, and shape, you know, the resource mix and mm -hmm. things like that. To what degree are you able to be involved? Is EPA coming to you and asking for your opinion on these things? Because ultimately, if FERC is responsible for sort of the bad outcomes, you'd like to be involved in the process, right? Uh, <laughs> it probably wouldn't hurt. Uh, so you're right, this, this does influence our jurisdiction. It's kind of difficult sometimes with FERC to know exactly what the ambit of our jurisdiction is, because apparently, we keep getting told that there are elephants hiding in every mouse hole and that our, any practice affecting rates can be immediately subject to the whim of a majority of commissioners. So yes, it, it absolutely affects our jurisdiction. 
One problem is that when you go to FERC as an institution, you have to understand that the, the commission is an independent agency made up of five commissioners led by a chairman who's uh, uh, elevated that position by the president, and the staff of FERC reports to the chairman, not the commissioners. We each have small offices to advise and help us. Um, but the, uh, often when people go to FERC for technical assistance, this is true with uh, congressional inquiries and the like, or there's agency-to-agency -agency coordination, that is the staff of FERC that does that. The commissioners are, are never asked their thoughts. It's been that way as long as I've, I've seen the operation of the agency. Um, so certainly nobody has asked me what I thought about it. Um, this is uh, not uncommon for it to operate like this, which is why if, if an agency actually wants to get the full view of the commission on a subject, it's worth asking every commissioner and sending correspondence CC'd to all of us if, if they want to hear it. And the same thing goes for congressional inquiries. If they want to hear what actually every commissioner thinks, they need to ask us all. Exactly. If they wanted to hear a diverse set of viewpoints, they, they would yeah. Or for that matter, even parties, get a sense sure. of how people are going to vote when, when tariff filings come in front of us. So all of that said, one thing that you are afforded is a voice at the open meetings. So one theme that I've picked up on, I, you may be the only one saying this out loud, and I appreciate it, is this idea that there's a scapegoating of global warming in terms of, again, who, who do we get mad at? It seems like a lot of the narrative is turning towards, well, these extreme events, oh, you got to blame extreme weather because the globe has warmed one degree Celsius since pre-industrial times. I don't see that as a plausible driver of reliability issues in the U.S. I wonder if you can touch on sort of that approach. What, what are you seeing in that vein? And, you know, to what extent can we push back on that idea that, hey, th this is just the way things are now, and it's because of the weather. It's not because of our policies that are taking, you know, the coal and gas units offline. So I've, I've actually never directly engaged in that subject before at a, a hearing or the open meeting. What I've said before is that the, the idea that, um, that eccentricities, even conceding every premise here, that, that eccentricities that are, are short-lived for the actual temperature, I'm going to talk about more you know, broad phenomena, but for actual moments within the system's operation are something that we can't plan for or that we are unable to actually meet is ridiculous because we have as much capacity as we want to build, right? There is, there is no uh, credible scenario in, in the world as it is today where we could be met with a set of, of um, uh, temperature or weather patterns that are more extreme than the weather that you get in Saudi Arabia or in you know, Mount Erebus in, in uh, <laughs> Antarctica. And both of those places are able to keep the lights on. So my, my point is merely that even conceding the premise, that is that is not a reason to alter the the fundamentals of what the obligations are of the utility system. I'm not, not talking about FERC jurisdiction solely here. I'm saying the states too, which is to ensure just and reasonable rates to the consumer, and in the process, make sure that the power is reliable. That is the that's the obligation that we and the state PUCs have. Which gets to you know it gets back to the point that you you refer to it as an avoidable crisis. Yes. I see the same thing, and in fact, NERC, I think, agrees with that, too. It's a, it's a question of the pace of change. Even if you want to see a transition, even if you want to see a forced transition, it is a policy choice that you can choose to speed up or slow down. Um, I'm, I'm curious, to, do you think EPA is hearing enough from NERC and others about pace of change and things like that? Because it seems to me Boy. that they, they it, it's all gas and no brakes. And, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't mean that in the gas plant sense, but they, they're they're just going for it. So I don't know. I, the the I'm not sure exactly how much EPA has asked NERC about anything. I I just that's out of my ballywick. Um, certainly, <clears throat> NERC is not an, an institution that takes strong positions on these larger policy issues, but they have. Um, Jim Rob, the president, has repeatedly said you have to tap the brakes here because we're getting to the point where the penetration of of intermittence is uh, going to start causing genuine problems for, for the stability of the bulk electric system. And um, part of the problem here, you know, going back to the question of who to blame, if you'll let me just return to that for a second. We had a, 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 an open, not an open meeting, but a, a hearing up in Burlington to discuss the perennial issue of potential shortfalls uh, in ISO New England. And, and New England is a particularly constrained area. It has um, uh, very little access to gas, which is the, the uh, backstop uh, generation asset up there. And they have um, uh, a lot of difficulties meeting their resource requirements. 
And uh, <clears throat> so this has been a perennial problem. They, they rely upon LNG imports. And uh, so we had a, a special hearing in order to talk to, to various uh, components of government, stakeholders, and utilities to figure out what it is that we could do within FERC's jurisdiction to, to fix their looming resource adequacy problems. And so I put it straight to the head of the ISO, should we 206U, that is to say, Section 206 of the FPA allows us to file a complaint, either somebody can file it or we can do it on our own motion to declare a rate unjust and reasonable and fix a replacement rate. Should we file a complaint against you in order to remove your resource adequacy obligations to then remove it from the market and put it in the hands of the states? And we had a colloquy about the subject and what the consequences would be, and that was all well and good. And then in a subsequent panel, I put the same question to a bunch of the state executive branch uh, officers who were uh, attending and providing testimony. And the answer was universally, no, don't do it, right? That has to be something that the market does. And so not only is the who is responsible kind of a Kafka-esque problem of people pointing in different directions, but it seems that to the extent possible, the, the FERC as an institution wants to put the resource adequacy issue not squarely in the, the territory of our failure to have just and reasonable tariffs. And so that's, that's our attempt to, to shy away from it. The states want it to be in the hands of the market, and the market is subject to all of the policies that are being enacted by the states and federal government. And so between the, and I, and I mentioned before, the, implicitly the consequences of the, over, the, the very aggressive environmental costs, when you have extremely aggressive regulation that drives the cost up for, for fuel-dependent resources, that is, let's say, gas and coal. They are unable to participate in the markets that have capacity markets. And even in those areas that don't, it can become so expensive that it is no longer a winning proposition. And because we live in America and we rely upon private enterprise to deliver our essential services, right? this is not a European state-owned utility system. This is private enterprise competing for uh, uh, customers, and admittedly in a regulatory construct, um, they will go out of business at rates that are unexpected. And in fact, MISO, which is the mid-continent uh, mid, uh, system operator, they have said that one of the reasons why they're having capacity shortfalls is because of premature unexpected retirements. I don't know. I, I expected the retirements. I don't know why they didn't. But the, this is one of the reasons why they're unable to assure going forward that they're going to have what they need. Which is a, a crowding out problem. And I think, so I've heard some folks say it's not a it's not a problem of addition of intermittent resources. It's a problem of subtraction of firm resources. And I, I, that's I, not I, really how markets work. So I, I have a little bit of a thread to pull on there. It, it's, it can be both, and one can cause the other. Mm -hmm. So the amount of intermittent resources on the grid operating at zero marginal cost, the way the markets work, they basically take priority. And it's the it's the crowding out effect of, um, you know, you, you can use a, a, a coworker. A, analogy where if you're the person that is there whenever you're called, mm -hmm. but you basically have to step aside if the intermittent coworker shows up. <laughs> um, that's not necessarily a good outcome for yeah. you. And if you're being paid the same wage, at some point you're going to say, I, I want out of this business um, at some amount of being interrupted. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a there's a profit profitability question, like can you stay in business in that context? So I, I think the addition piece is actually part of the subtraction piece. I want to get your thoughts on that. So it's actually even worse than you say, because in those markets that have both a procurement auction and an energy auction, and you understand we have a, we have a bunch of different markets. They all have different tariffs. They operate in slightly different ways, or actually in some cases, profoundly different ways. But in a system in which you have a procurement auction, a capacity auction first, where you make sure that you get all of the resources needed to meet peak, peak demand, and then <clears throat> those payments are made. In part, that's to incentivize the, the attraction of new needed resources and the retention of, of existing needed resources. They will be available come three years when the obligation arises. Um, the intermittents, because of the, the, how, how lucrative the uh, subsidies are, are typically able to bid in at zero, or I should say offer in. And um, if they, they offer in at zero, that means that the bid stack gets filled at the bottom with all of the resources that have a zero offering. And they can do that because they don't have high marginal costs. So then, after we get through all of the zero bids, then people start offering in at their marginal costs. And eventually, the bid stack gets to the point where you have all of the resources needed. And once you're there, nobody else clears the auction. And then everybody in the stack, from top to bottom, gets paid the marginal price at the top. 
So even though the, the offers in from the intermittents, given the fact that they have these subsidies is at zero, they effectively get the payment for the marginal cost unit that has all of the operations and ongoing expenses for fuel and the like. The result of that is that absent a capacity market payment, many of the um, more traditional resources are simply unable to remain solvent. You then go to the actual uh, energy market, which is the real-time market where you, you are selling electricity, right? You, the capacity market is not the market for electricity. You get paid separately for electricity. When it comes time to deliver, the markets are there. And this is, this is one of the great promises of the markets, right? They, they optimize for the dispatch of the least cost option. That is, that it, and as a free marketeer myself, I love the, 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 the experiment that we undertook here. But so you, so you have a, a windfall for the zero offering resources in the capacity market. And then when it comes time for the energy market, every resource operates along its technical constraints. And for large baseload generators, it takes half a day to get them up to the heat necessary to actually produce steam for the turbines to be dispatchable. If they are not called in the beginning, <clears throat> then there is a long period of time where they're not going to be called again because you have continuous um, either, either, let's say, gas plants that are dispatchable quickly or you have intermittents that are available. And then when the time comes when the intermittents drop off, which they do, this is an actuarial point, eventually they're going to not be, be available, then you have to back it up with um, quick reacting dispatchable fossil fuel resources typically. And in the case of the ones that are technically constrained, like coal plants, for example, they can't be there because there's such a long lead time. And so they, are, they lose revenue uh, both from the capacity market and effectively in the energy market because of the way it's dispatched. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So in the intro from Derek, we heard about the California model, which is a very interesting approach where it's basically maximalist on um, solar output during the day and then you know, as you said, there's they, there have to be plenty of gas plants available to then make up for the solar as it comes off this system, and sort of the the shape of that map over time to looks kind of like a duck, and they call it the duck curve. And I always appreciate I, I can't have an event like this and not bring up the duck curve. To reinforce that point, ISO New England said not long ago that if New England states were to fully implement all of the laws currently on the books, and this was current as of nine months ago, I forget exactly when it was then even though the total amount of gas generation, which as I said before is the, the, the primary backup in New England, um, nearly the only backup, uh, the total amount of gas per year burned for electricity would drop, but the total amount of gas transmission capacity in the pipeline system would have to be increased by a significant amount. And why is that? It's because Every uh, intermittent resource just you know, operates on a, on a cyclical curve, and sometimes like there's it's a flow rate issue. Exactly, and and when they both are not available, both wind and solar are not running, then what you have to be able to do is back up every single megawatt of the system with gas instantaneously, and so ironically, you need to build more pipe. Maybe not ironically, counterintuitively, you have to build more pipe in order to actually effectively back that up because as no matter what people's policy preferences are, there's a, a basic engineering reality, which is that in the state of technology today, you cannot run a reliable and, and properly operating bulk electric system solely with inverter-based resources, which is wind and solar. You just can't do it. We don't have batteries that have sufficient backup time. You have to have something that can actually be dispatched to make up the shortfall. So I do want to leave plenty of time for Q&A, so have your questions ready. I, one last question, because from, from me anyways, because you, you walked right into it, and this is a, an issue that you know, for for insiders, maybe we we're aware of it. I'm not sure everyone is the the gas availability issue mm -hmm. and the FERC action from last year. Do you want to touch on sort of the 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 threat or the the chilling effect of basically saying we're going to reevaluate the way that we do pipeline approvals because historically that's been a, a fairly straightforward process. Um, it got messy last year, and there's still. Uh, you know, I, I would I would think of it in terms of policy certainty. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to have the certainty that the rule that was initially deemed final, and then later after a different Senate ENR hearing, uh, where you know I, I I would say the chairman was grilled on this issue, and then it was turned into a draft statement. That draft is still somewhat floating out there. For 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 those of us not in the building anymore, the question is. Is that draft going to go anywhere? And so, what, what is the impact on the industry of that uncertainty? Right. So, I'm I am not going to talk about what's going to happen with the draft because we don't talk about deliberations, as you well know. But uh, so, yeah, for years, Section Seven approvals—that is, the approval for interstate natural gas pipelines—was run along uh, very predictable lines. 
you could you could pretty much predict maybe not down to the month but but you know within a few months when you would get the yay or nay from from FERC. And typically, because these are sophisticated companies and they do all their due diligence beforehand and they have pre-filings and so forth, the, the, the process is, is well run and well understood. Um, we uh, issued um, uh, a, a revision of the, pipe, the pipeline policy statement. And in that uh, policy statement, the, uh, the, the process was going to be changed in order to uh, encourage Right, encourage uh, voluntary mitigation by the pipelines for all of the effects of the, the CO2 being burned, or CO2 produced by downstream uh, emission. Now, I have a couple problems with that. One of them is that it's not within our jurisdiction, it's specifically outside of it, in fact. Um, second, the downstream emissions are not reasonably foreseeable according to the NEPA analysis, which would have been the basis for making these findings. Third, the commission not only doesn't give any guidelines for how, in this policy statement, for how to do mitigation or to what extent or by what mechanism, it further threatened the pipeline industry by saying, and if we don't like it, we can impose it if we want to, which the, 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 the risk premium that anybody with a spreadsheet has to add to any proposed project to figure out what that mitigation could be, because there's, there's simply no limit to it, is, is stultifying. So much so, in fact, that when you add to it the other change that was made, which is that staff began doing environmental impact statements for every project that had even the most incremental quantity of gas burned, that internal decision to, to go to EIS has increased the review period dramatically. Their environmental impact statements are NEPA documents that are much longer than their alternative EAs, and so they take much longer. So that increase in the process plus the uncertainty, the sort of Damocles hanging over the pipeline industry, meant that last year had the least uh, additional marginal quantity of natural gas capacity added to the international, the, the international, the interstate natural gas system since 1995. I don't know, five, I forget the year exactly, but it's in the 90s. And so the chilling effect has been profound. And this is at a time where the demand for natural gas is growing continuously because with the greater penetration of intermittence, you need more natural gas. As I explained in the case of ice in England, that's an extreme case, but it's true everywhere. <clears throat> and natural gas is still a cheap and economically viable means of uh, producing electricity, which to harp on it one more time, the job of utility regulators is to make just and reasonable rates and you want to seek the lowest cost possible alternative that actually meets the system stability requirements. And if I can beat up on EPA just a little bit more, <laughs> one of the main, one of the more straightforward and actually technologically feasible compliance mechanisms for their new greenhouse gas rule is to simply close an existing coal plant. But what do you need in order to sustain grid reliability if coal plants are closing? It's more gas. So the, the interplay between all, all these things is hugely important. I do, I do want to go ahead and go to audience questions. Does anybody have any questions ready to go? I was going to say let's go with blue tie, but that doesn't, that doesn't narrow it down at all. <laughs> we'll, okay. we'll, we'll answer both. Here we, so this is all very interesting. Now, we, we all remember Secretary Perry's infamous NOP, NOPA, right, where he sort of realizes there's a problem there. It's kind of ham-handed, it's not done well. And my understanding, FERC was going to sort of leave, open the docket to talk about it at least. I don't know what happened to it. But I just have a sort of a question on FERC's mission. Could FERC issue a report or a statement to the Congress say, look, if you do this, electricity prices are gonna be more expensive and they're gonna be less resilient. And it seems to me that's what's, I mean, it seems to me that would be a good role for FERC given that there's a lot of people who believe a lot of funny things about intermittent intermittent power. It's not the same as firm power. It's a different product. And I, I really think the public isn't well served. We have this independent institution that could actually sort of inform the Congress, inform the public, that there's a lot of ways to design power systems, but the way you're going now has got a lot of risk to it, both in terms of prices and dropping load. There's no forward market. I can't go into the forward market and buy reliable power, right, as an individual consumer. So it seems to me it's a legitimate work for FERC, but I'm sort of curious. So we you ever had this discussion at FERC? Or? We, we, so what would it mean for FERC to issue a report? We, we, we run aground on the rocky shoals of the actual structure of the institution here. What would it mean for FERC to issue such a thing? Um, the commissioners don't have staff to write these things and do these inquiries, and it could be the staff issuing it, but that would mean it was effectively only the chairman's determination, not FERC, unless we then took a vote on whether we all approved it. 
So we are not designed to do that sort of thing. We are a deliberative body that reviews and rules upon um, certificates for pipelines, authorizations for LNG terminals, NERC reliability standards, and tariff filings. That's, that's, th th that's essentially what we do. I would be perfectly happy to have the FERC staff work on that, but it's ultimately not my decision. I'm not the chairman. And um, you know, absent a directive from, let's say, Congress in a statute saying FERC shall, I'm, I'm not, and even then it would still be the staff doing it under the direction of the chairman. So FERC as an independent body would be unlikely to do it. So, I, I mean, I'm, it, does that answer the question why it hasn't no, happened yet? This is really the kind of thing the Department of Energy would do, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to get out of responsibility here. I'm just saying it just mechanically. Hi, uh, th thank you for that uh, uh, presentation. Um, so uh, permitting reform is being discussed in conjunction with debt ceiling and whatnot on Capitol Hill. Um, from um, FERC's insider perspective, should uh, um, should we be broadening the discretion, uh, FERC's discretion over permitting, um, or should we be narrowing down? Uh, are there any specific areas we should be focusing on in terms of permitting reform? Yes. So first of all. You, you cannot encounter any jurisdiction offered to me that I want. So broadening anything, no. I don't want any broader anything at all, right, at FERC. We have a narrow mission, and I would like to see it, see it even narrower than it is, uh, in part because the utilities and the pipeline companies understand their obligations better than we do. And if you look at the great sweep of history for all of the great ideas FERC has had to do things like improve competition or you know, harness market forces or try to uh, streamline mechanisms, like transmission planning is a perfect example. I said this at the hearing a couple weeks ago, the more FERC process you get, the less of the thing you're, you want you're gonna get. Right, so uh, nobody in the world likes order number 1000, which is the mechanism by which we do uh, transmission planning right now, and I guarantee you, the more ideas we have, the worse it'll be. That's your first question. The second question, permitting reform, yes. So from the FERC standpoint, there are only two things that matter for permitting reform, only two. Anything else besides that is going to prove uh, illusory benefit. It's, it will not help in the long run. The two things that are needed are to change the state's effective veto under section 401 of the Clean Water Act, right? Originally, when people got FERC certificates, they would go to the state courts and seek condemnation authority if they couldn't uh, arrange uh, easements with the property owners. We had a case in which one particular state decided that because they weren't getting offtake, their citizens wouldn't benefit, and they refused to use the condemnation power to aid a neighbor state getting gas. So the NGA was amended to make a single uniform statutory scheme for the entire country so that any certificate holder can use federal courts to condemn. Clean Water Act was uh, implemented, which allows the states to have what now amounts to an effective veto, because if they don't issue a water quality permit, then the FERC Section 7 uh, uh, certificate fails. So that is, that is the reason, for example, that there is no new gas transmission to New England, and the New England states are suffering because their neighbors did not issue a Section 401 certificate, or, or rather a permit. The other thing, besides the Clean Water Act change, is to change the back-end litigation risk from the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. Because NEPA uh, is, uh, doesn't specify a, a standard or uh, a standard of review, it defaults to the Standard Administrative Procedure Act review of arbitrary and capricious. And uh, that means that any NEPA document that is issued by any agency can be fly-specked by any appellate court for even the most trivial errors where either the question was not, the, the, whatever comment was put forth was insufficiently responded to in the eyes of the, of the appellate court. Um, there, the, there was an answer, but the answer wasn't sufficiently probing. Uh, you you uh, answered it, but not in a way that was rational, according to the court. And so the result is that every FERC Section 7 certificate, we're talking about pipelines here, Every FERC Section 7 certificate, its own NEPA document is subject to that fly-specking and litigation risk, plus all of the resource agency input permits, that is to say Forest Service, National Park Service, right, Bureau of Land Management, all of their uh, issuances are similarly subject to this kind of review. And so we see in the case of Mountain Valley Pipeline, for example, the Fourth Circuit has remanded and vacated five times various input permits to the Section 7 certificate. We're done with Mountain Valley Pipeline. We've, we've certificated it. The only act left for FERC to do is when those federal permits come through is to 
determine whether or not we want to issue a notice to proceed with construction. And yet, despite the fact that the commission, which has sole authority over making determinations about uh, the public interest for pipeline infrastructure, has declared that it is needed for the public convenience and necessity, it nevertheless is held up because of this back-end litigation risk. I spoke earlier about the risk premiums you have to add because of the uncertainty of the, the draft policy statements, which still hang like the sort of Damocles over the industry. They're drafts now, but that doesn't mean they can't be finalized. Think of the risk premium that you would have to add to any proposed Section 7 project, given the fact that every square inch of federal land that you cross requires some sort of permit from a research agency, and you have the back-end litigation risk for the issuance from FERC itself. This is stultifying, and it makes it almost impossible to build new natural gas. Those are the two things. And by the way, one last point here. In the absence of those two reforms, none of the other reforms that I've heard about ricocheting around Capitol Hill are really going to be effective. Setting deadlines without a, right, a private right of action won't work, and even if you could go to a court for a petition for writ of mandamus to force the, the court to issue, or the, the agency to issue something, what you'll get is an order that's not ready for, for review, and it will be vacated and remanded. So you don't want to force the agency to issue anything. Other, other uh, provisions that amount to, here's the priorities, bureaucrats work harder, that's not going to help either. Those are the two reforms needed, and you have a real moral risk that attends passing something that is ineffective, because then how much longer will it be before Congress builds up the will to change permitting? One of the ironies here is that because all of those daggers that have been used for Section 7 attacks in litigation over the last 10 years or so have been sharpened to, to razor sharpness, that then can be applied in every case that a transmission line that's proposed goes through federal lands. And I guarantee you that it is not going to be easy to cite transmission despite what people want to see happen, because there is so much, uh, there is so much uh, case law that allows for withering um, uh, litigation on the NEPA documents. So. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add the, uh, the fly specking that he's talking about is really there, it's hard to express how much of it there is. They're really well-funded and well-organized environmental NGOs doing this work for a living. And, and they have very good lawyers. Very good lawyers, very well yeah. paid, all of them, I'm sure. The, the, the thing that is very interesting about this is to see how this plays out. The, the case law that they've established, of course, is because they don't want us to use gas, just period. They don't want anybody to use it. It's the keep it in the ground movement. Using that against the transmission lines that they now want to build, that's going to be very fascinating to watch. So relative to you, you know, FERC's responsibility, um, or mission to, I think I saw it on their webpage once, to provide a reliable or support, a reliable, resilient, affordable, safe electricity uh, to to end users. Is there a way to 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 move forward focusing on the output of the grid? Seems like there's a lot of attention on the input, all the generation, all of that. But essentially, to the gentleman's point over here, I mean, it's a it's a machine. It's an engineering product to produce that electricity. You have to satisfy all the, the engineering requirements. The electrons don't care about elections, they just go with the flow. I mean, I'm, obviously I'm <laughs> from an engineering perspective. So, <clears throat> and you mentioned that DOE has a lot of jurisdiction in this in terms of the actual design of this, but they're very siloed. I mean, do you have any uh, perspectives on how to break down those silos and get a focus on an integrated solution for electricity coming out of the grid that would recognize you, you know, if you cut down one source of firm to dispatchable generation, you're going to have to come up with another one or, you know, stop discussing capacity or we're going to have energy shortages. So implicit in your question is that somebody in the federal government can or should do something about this. And my argument back to you would be the more federal government anything, the worse it ends up being. Yes, somebody can come up with a plan for outputs and inputs and throughputs and everything, and they're called the states. Uh, to get back to the point of Who's accountable for providing that safe, reliant, reliable electricity? Is it the federal government or the states? I mean, or right now, I made the comment at a, at a panel discussion in Chicago last year for on infrastructure, that there is no single entity accountable in the deregulated areas. I mean, if you live in a vertically integrated area, There is. It's, served, the, it's the, the state PUCs, which are politically accountable one way or another elections are appointed. And the uh, ultimately, there is also the accountability to the investor-owned utilities who have shareholders and customers. 
it is not a bad thing to have people accountable both for the cost of the service they provide to the customers and have to make their operations solvent and to have the, the, the only reason we have this regulatory paradigm at all is because electricity cannot be delivered in, a, in an ad hoc basis. We have to have economies of scale and it is a natural monopoly. The transmission system is a natural monopoly. So we have created franchise service territories and this has been the utility regulation paradigm well before FERC was ever established from the very beginning in which you grant franchise service territories in which you have to balance two sets of property interests. Right? Those of the captive rate payer to stop the franchisee from extracting monopolist rents from them, and then those of the private individual ca you know, capital owner, the company, that deploys its capital <clears throat> and must be able to get a return of, that is the takings clause, and on, that is uh, HOPE, the Supreme Court case that says you have to get a, a reasonable return on your investment, and you have to strike a balance between those two, and that is the essence of what the just and reasonable rate requirement is. That is simply a rate requirement. There is a completely separate process in the states for the integrated resource plans, and in the in the in the vertically vertically integrated states, there is a party responsible, and it's the state ultimately. They have the police powers, they have all residual authority and responsibility. FERC is a very small agency that has a narrow ultimate mission from when it was created, which is to ensure that the states do not commit depredations on their neighbors when it comes to electricity, because this is a national uh, a matter of national concern affected with the public interest. So who should be in charge? Well, it certainly shouldn't be us because we are not competent to be the national uh, bulk electric system planners. Right? We, we, we have never done it, it's not our job. It would be stunning if we were because every service territory is, is subject to different topology, demography, topography, right? it, it, completely different. And um, on top of that, uh, even if we were to do it, I would be rather concerned that there would be a, 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 an inability to have the information necessary in the mechanisms that are available to us for the hearings that we hold to actually make rational decisions. Okay, the DOE also is not in charge of determining how the systems are run. Ultimately, this comes down to the utilities themselves, and if the utilities procure things through a normal uh, vertically integrated system, they have one set of mechanisms, and if they get it through a market, that's another one. Yes, there is a problem, but nobody but the states ultimately have the power to solve it. And I would argue only the states should. So I, I, I do want to put a maybe a, a finer point on this because sure. I have seen the same thing and I'm somewhat, I, I would say, frustrated in the, and uh, you did exactly what every federal regulator does, which says point to the states. But if you ask the states, especially on issues of, of cost, they'll say, well, there's a lot that happens at the federal level that's sort of beyond our jurisdiction too. So you end up with state and federal folks pointing at each other and saying, well, that's not really, I'm not the problem here, the other guy, it's, but I do. So, so the, the question is, because I've just been tarred with sounding like every other federal official, I will rebut that. And I will say, how many times do you hear a federal official say, it's their problem, oh, and by the way, divest me of all of my jurisdiction in the process, right? Because what I am saying is we have engaged in experiments in market design that have ultimately created a mechanism for utility delivery that is inapposite to the statutory uh, uh, powers and responsibilities that we have as an institution. And what we could do, and it, it worked just fine for a long time, is basically return to a, a process in which FERC scrutinizes the interstate wholesale rates uh, uh, of electricity provides uh, you know, a review of and an acceptance or rejection of tariffs for that and otherwise remains a neutral arbiter. That would work and then I would say it is the state's problem and guess what agrees with me? The Federal Power Act, right? Because it puts in the states all powers other than determining what the rates for transmission and electric service are, or and electric power. I didn't mean to slander you at the charge that you sound like no, a no, but I'm, federal I, official. I, I am, I, I, <laughs> a lot of that is very refreshing and not at all what I would hear from the, yeah. the, the, the typical folks. Uh, one, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll narrow the question a little bit more. When it comes to, so here's, here's, here's one example. Order number 2000, mm -hmm. which is basically the order that established all the regional transmission organizations mm -hmm. that said, this is a thing that FERC is gonna do. We're gonna get behind this idea of wholesale organized markets. The text of order number 2000 said the goal of this policy is reliability at least cost. Now, that was 1999. As far as I know, FERC has never followed up to say, this is what we expected to happen in this order that we issued in 1999, and it's been more than 20 years. 
let's see how we did or how we might be able to improve, which I think gets back to the question about are we studying, are we doing anything to learn? You know, there is a policy shop within FERC. Yeah. What capability do we have to basically judge our own actions and do sort of an after the fact you know, test of, of how it worked? I, w I would love if FERC as an institution would uh, look inward for a moment on this. Yes, it is true that market forces have done a pretty good job in some regions of driving the cost of power down. Right. The regions that have organized markets have seen the cost of transmission go up and up and up and up. And the all-in bill to the consumer appears to me at any rate to look flat or higher than it used to be, all things being equal. I mean, I, 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 I don't have definitive proof of that. I'm just saying that's, that's the way it feels as a regulator responsible for these markets. Um, and I think the promises of least cost are at best equivocal and I am certain that the promises of reliability are not there. And the, the, the uh, you know, one may, one may accuse me of being alarmist about, about raising the, the alarm about this impending reliability crisis. I find this incredible process happen in which we skate through something like this last winter with, with, with no, no major catastrophes. I'm not saying we didn't have rotating outages, we did. But, um, and then people basically say afterwards, look, everything worked, it was great. Well, that, that's, that's, that's like you know, proving that you can, you're a soothsayer because you accurately make one prediction. Well, it's just not, it's not true. The, 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 this is an actuarial issue, I used that word earlier. Over a long enough timeline, something bad will happen with these policies in place. And so if we could actually look into it, I, I'm at the point where I've repeatedly said, we need to immediately 206, that is to say, again, file a complaint under section 206 against every one of our markets, and at a minimum, demand that they show cause for why it is that the rates are not unjust and unreasonable based upon what we have seen happen in those markets. And, and certainly when you have the head of a market admit on the record in a public hearing that that, they can, that, that market can no longer ensure resource adequacy through market mechanisms, it, it is absolutely stupefying to hear something like that because it basically means that all of the money paid for the capacity payments by every consumer was, was for an illusory benefit. And so, yes, I would love to see that. And that, by the way, is a study I would like to see FERC do, and FERC would be competent to do that one. All right, well, you have just said 206 the markets, and I'm not, I'm not sure we heard from Nancy. I want to give Nancy an opportunity to ask a question, especially after this 206 the markets comment. And then we're almost out of time. I do want to turn to one question from the online audience. Okay, got one online question here. It says, uh, I'm not an expert in this area, but I share your concerns and would like to be more involved. What's an example of something I can do to help? <laughs> not knowing anything about this lady or gentleman's background, uh, I mean, if you happen to be an appellate lawyer, <laughs> I guess there's one set of things you can do. Uh, if you're uh, if you're just a consumer of electricity, I I, I, I don't know. I guess uh, start watching the the fun repartee that is the FERC open meeting, right? Uh, and uh, you know, read our dockets, I suppose, and file comments if you feel moved to. I mean. FERC reads all of the comments and all the tariff proceedings, and having a sense of who your utility is and who your wholesale provider is might not be a bad idea if you're actually interested in the subject. You can also go to the NERC uh, website and figure out, you know, learn what it is that NERC is doing for their reliability standards. But I'll say, if you think that, that FERC is slow and methodical, ooh, you ain't seen nothing until you've seen a, a NERC standard setting process. No criticism there, I'm just saying it takes a long time to come up with one. So, and, and an interesting point here, the Administrative Procedure Act requires that FERC address all substantive comments That's right. that it, that it yeah. receives. So it's not just a yeah. question of, is my comment going to be even read or reviewed It has or to anything? be, or, or it, it, will be the, it will be reversed, assuming has, somebody appeals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how you can help. Um, assuming we have no more in-person audience questions, we don't. Just want to thank you, sir, for joining us, and uh, th thank the audience for joining us as well. Um, and we'll we'll sign off there. Thanks so much. Thank you.